the African Data Scientist Podcast, a podcast where we get to tell the story of the African AI and data science potential. I'm your host for this episode, Stephen Oladili. In this episode, we had a conversation with Professor Julia Stoyanovich, who is an assistant professor of data science at the Center for Data Science, New York University. We talked a lot about her career transition from the industry to the academia, as well as the lessons learned from those, what responsible AI and data science means for a continent like Africa, and so many other things centered around building AI systems responsibly. I'm sure you will get a lot of actionable insights from this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate five star wherever you're listening to your podcast on, share with your colleagues and social network. The show notes contain other details around the podcast, so you could check that. And now without further ado, let's dive right into the episode. Hello, Professor Julia. How are you doing today? Fine. How are you, Stephen? I'm very well, thank you. Welcome to our show. We are extremely delighted to have you here and excited about this episode with you. Thank you so much for coming to our show. It's my pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Welcome once again. Please, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and, of course, what you're currently working on? Yes. So my name is Julia Stoyanovich. Uh, I am an assistant professor of computer science and of data science at New York University. My background is in uh, computer science and specifically in data management. Uh, and these days, really in the last few years, I have been focusing in particular on the aspects of responsibility in the management of data, uh, mm -hmm. especially yeah. as it pertains to data then being fed to machine learning or AI methods upstream. Mm. All right. All right. That's, that's really awesome. Thank you so much. Now, when, when did you decide during your career that you were going to spend more time in the academia? Because, of course, you mentioned your assistant professor at the Center for Data Science, New York University. When did you decide during your career that you were going to spend more time in the academia as opposed to the industry? Uh, so I uh, graduated from college in the U.S. in 98. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then I went on to, uh, to work in industry mm. okay. uh, for five years. So I worked in startups uh, in New York mm -hmm. City. Mm -hmm. And I was realizing uh, that, you know, during these five years, I ended up working at three different companies. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And I was realizing that I was getting bored extremely, mm. uh, that it was really just difficult for me to learn something and then continue doing that same thing over and over. Uh, and this is when I knew that I needed to be somewhere where every new project would be just very different. Uh, and and that's, that's what academia is. It gives you that freedom to do things once, figure them out once, and then you can continue doing them or you can switch. Uh, mm. And that's, yeah. I think that's invaluable to me specifically. Mm. All right, thank you so much for, for, for such insight. Now, of course, look at, looking at your, your background, I'm certain you probably did just start with responsible data science, did you? Oh, of course not, right? So oh, yeah. there was no such thing when I was starting out. Uh, so when I uh, started uh, already in industry, the work that I was doing was in data management. Mm, okay. um, and then when I started my uh, doctoral work at Columbia University in 2003, my focus remained data management, databases as it's also known. Mm, okay. uh, and at that time, there, uh, there really was not responsible data management or responsible data science. This really only... Uh, kind of, at least for me, it came on the horizon about five years ago, I'd want to say, uh, mm. although some others in the uh, data mining community uh, have been thinking about these issues of bias and discrimination since the early 2010s uh, or even before the late uh, 2000s. Um, mm. So uh, I, I started about five years ago, and this was when I realized that, of course, you know, machines are not neutral. 
that data is yeah. not neutral and that the kinds of impacts that technology is having on society are, are tremendous uh, and that it's up to us technologists to understand what's going on and to step in. Mm, all right, understanding what, um, to understand what's going on and of course to, to step in. And of course, talking about the responsible data science of things, what should people who build ML, AI, data science systems today think about in context of fairness and responsibility? Right, so, so this is a very important question. Uh, and I'm guessing that most of your audience are actual practitioners, right? They mm -hmm. are yeah. people who develop machine learning and AI models, and they're then people who, who use them. Uh, yes. So developers and data scientists. And the line is really blurred, mm -hmm. right? I mean, in some tasks, you're going to be building new models. Other tasks, you're going to be using some existing approaches, existing models that others have built. Yes. Um, and so what I think we need to uh, really be cognizant of is that uh, the technological choices that we make, they are not objectively correct in many cases, and they're not neutral. Mm -hmm. uh, when our goals are to increase efficiency of computation, let's say, to make sure that our algorithms run uh, in no more than a certain number of uh, seconds or take up no more than a certain amount of space, then we can objectively check whether our algorithms are meeting these, these criteria. Mm, yeah. But when our tasks are societal, like we're doing resource distribution, for example, mm -hmm. then there's really no way for us to check that the way that we're doing this is correct. We are, by implementing our machine learning methods in a particular way, always making a value judgment. We're making a statement about how the world should be. Mm. And there's no opportunity for us to go back and kind of say, oh, I'm going to, you know, have two worlds, one in which I am deploying my algorithm and one in which I'm not, or in which I'm deploying it slightly differently. And I run both of these worlds forward and then I check which one comes out better, right? Mm -hmm, yeah. This is not something we can do. So again, the main thing for developers, and this is unusual for us in engineering disciplines, is that in many of these cases, there's no ground truth and mm -hmm. there is no absolute measure of correctness. And so we have to be aware of the fact that we're exercising judgment, human judgment, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, we're people even when we are engineers, um, but we should not be playing God, right? We should be very humble mm -hmm. yeah. about the kinds of things we're doing and then being very aware of the impacts that, that our work has on others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. thank you so much for that. Your insights there and your advice were, of course, for practitioners and engineers building these systems. Now, what should individuals or members of the public think about fairness and responsibility when it comes to AI and machine learning? And then that's, that's a great question as well. Uh, so even developers, of course, are people, right? And so mm -hmm, the main yes. point that I made in, in the previous answer is that we as software developers should see ourselves as people and take mm -hmm, personal yeah. responsibility for the types of work that we do. And the similar thing, of course, applies to people who are giving their data for processing and who are experiencing the impacts mm -hmm, of these yeah. algorithmic techniques. So we should all feel entitled uh, to ask questions about how our data is used, how it's impacting us, how it's impacting society at large, and we should all feel that it's our place to work really hard to understand uh, what's going on and to question and to push back uh, on some of the uses of technology that we don't think are right. Uh, we really need to, as members of the public, to educate ourselves to to gain a nuanced understanding of the role of technology in society so that we are not putting ourselves into one of these two corners 
one of them being that AI is magic and it can do anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other is that it's evil, that it's witchcraft, right? So these are not productive mm-hmm. points of view, either that we trust it to do everything for us, that we trust AI, or that we just say, no, let's throw out technology because it's harmful. We need to educate ourselves as members of mm-hmm. the public yeah. uh, to find a nuanced spot in between where we can engage really in this conversation more productively. More, more productive conversations on that. Um, thank you so much for such insight, Professor Julia. Now, of course, Professor Julia, be, people build these things, engineers, developers, people build these systems. And of course, they are mostly biased. Humans are biased generally and looking at the, the broader scape of things. Now, would you consider AI neutral and unbiased in itself? Uh, yeah, so so this is an interesting question. And what, what you started uh, with is saying that people are biased. And I agree mm-hmm. with you, right? I mean, yeah. in, and then... In our conversation here, bias has a negative connotation, right? To us, yes. bias essentially means that you hold some opinions that are unsubstantiated. Mm, yeah. uh, but this is also something that is uh, natural to people, right? Because the world is infinitely complex mm. and we cannot expect to understand every phenomenon in such detail that we would be able to make decisions about it only when we know thoroughly, right, what's going on. So mm-hmm. at some point we have to abstract because otherwise we would just be reduced to inaction. We would just sit there and not act at all until we had a full understanding of all the phenomena. So that's why bias comes about, right? So it's, mm-hmm. it's justified by just the fact that our, our worldview is limited and the world is, uh, is infinite, right? It, it's, it's much more complex than we can comprehend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, the types of biases that we as people carry, they exhibit themselves uh, in the world, in our actions and then in the world. Uh, and this world then shows itself in data, mm, right? Yeah. So these human biases, they carry into the world and through data, they then impact these complex algorithms that we develop that we call machine learning or AI that are yeah. trained on data, right? That yes. decide how they should act based on what they see in the data. And so in, you know, in every sense in which human behavior somehow is not, uh, you know, is not perfectly well informed, um, in yeah. all of those senses, AI is also going to be biased. But another thing I want to say is that uh, you can also take bias to just mean subjectivity, right? Mm. And like yeah. I underscored earlier, uh, in very many cases, in very many decisions that we have to make, there is no one correct answer. Uh, There's always trade-offs. There's always a decision that you have to make, right? Because not making a decision Mm -hmm. also amounts to making a decision to stop. And then whatever decision you make necessarily is going to simplify the world somehow, right? And so that, in that Mm -hmm. sense, bias is is not negative, right? There is subjectivity uh, that is in the data and that AI will then exhibit as well. All right. So just to, just to cut that off, AI in itself is is neutral, but the, the training data is the bias that brings. I, yeah. I wouldn't say that, actually. Uh, okay. So, so that, that's kind of another point, right? So when we talk yeah, about okay. bias uh, in the sense of, uh, in its negative sense, right? So actually okay. taking things like historical discrimination and historical yes. disadvantage and yes. then seeing them effect, their effects in technology, There are multiple sources uh, or multiple paths through which bias can enter into these systems. So there is this paper by uh, Batya Friedman and Helen Nissenbaum from the 1990s. It's a seminal paper in our understanding of 
bias in computer systems. And in that work, they uh, essentially classify bias into three categories. Okay. Pre-existing bias is something that exhibits itself in the data and that is happening outside of the technological system. It's due essentially to the way that society operates and where there's justice lacking in society. Yeah. The second kind of bias, however, is technical bias. And this is something that arises because of the way that the computer system is itself implemented. So because of the way that AI works. And I'll give examples mm -hmm. of that. Uh, the third kind of bias is emergent bias. And it arises because we uh, run these systems and then they reinforce uh, some types of belief or types of behavior in people. Mm -hmm. And then there are feedback loops that get okay. created. And so this bias kind of amplifies itself. So okay. back to technical bias and to why AI itself, right, kind of the bare bones AI without mm -hmm. data yeah. is not neutral as well, is that when we uh, implement algorithms, we also make choices. So for example, Suppose that you have a data set in which there are missing values for some of the features. For example, age is missing in some of the records, but it's present in most of the records. And suppose that uh, the majority, there's also gender in your data set, and suppose that gender is binary. So half of the records are male and the other half are female. Mm -hmm. And maybe uh, because of the way that you collect this data, people just have to choose one of these two genders. Is it male or is it female, right? So in yeah. all your records, you have gender specified, but age is sometimes missing. missing. Mm -hmm. If it turns out that uh, men are the majority of your data set, but that the age value is missing for women more frequently, you may choose to impute, to guess a value for the missing age. And if you're using one particular method, and that is the default method actually in many toolkits like scikit-learn, and that is just take the most frequent value and impute. Mm -hmm. uh, this, is, this is known as mean imputation. Then you will be guessing age systematically incorrectly for women if the reasons for which age is missing is different for men and for women. Maybe for men it's missing at random and for women the older they get, the less likely they are to report their age. So you would be systematically introducing bias into the values of age and into the distribution of age for women because of mm. the way that you chose to fill in those values. Mm. So that's one example of technical bias. Another just that, that is kind of more AI and machine learning specific is that of course, these methods, the, the reason that we love them so much and the reason that they're so popular is because they are able to pick up signal from the data really, really well and to amplify that mm -hmm. signal. And so if there is some amount of uh, kind of discriminatory bias in the data, it may so happen that, say, a classifier would amplify it. It would make the margin wider. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so in that sense, just by nature of this learning algorithm, it's going to also not be unbiased, right? If it gets something in, if it gets biased data in, it will produce an even more biased data set. And so these are all examples where uh, the algorithm itself is also not neutral. And there, there are many others. I'm happy to go through a few others, but uh, just there's a lot in the technology itself that either reinforces or introduces uh, systematic inaccuracies into the data distributions or into the ways that we interact with data. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Julia, for that. Uh, most of the papers you talked about, we'll link them in the show notes for listeners who want to dig deep into this um, further can, can do that. Now, Professor Julia meant we're on the, the podcast, The African Data Scientist. And what we do in the podcast here is to tell the stories 
of the African data science and AI potential. Now, Africa is arguably the most vulnerable continent when it comes to data privacy for end users. How do you think we should go about data privacy in Africa? Uh, I think that data privacy and taken more generally as just exercising control over how your data is collected and how it's used. Mm, yeah. So I would call this data protection, right? Mm. Because mm-hmm. kind of traditionally, yeah. by when we say privacy, we mean I don't want to disclose or I don't want to be identified. But these days we do have to share data because we want to engage right, productively yes. in all of these environments. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so data protection in the sense of <clears throat> protection in the sense of exercising control <clears throat> over data collection and use is very important. And I think that it's particularly important, as you point out, for populations, for economies that are more vulnerable. Because as we have seen through history, unfortunately, uh, these are the the populations and and, uh, the economies where Mm -hmm. we take shortcuts. And Mm -hmm. in this particular case, we just cannot afford to do that anymore. So I think that once again, it's it's just a call to action and um, that that we should not uh, be allowing uh, powers, right? Platforms, governments to be telling us, oh, this is just a temporary thing. We're going to get your data and then, you know, don't worry, we'll take good care of it. We should really be asking for accountability specifically mm-hmm. in cases where there is there is vulnerability and where there is a history of abuse of power. Mm-hmm. So, accountability so is, I don't have a yeah. more concrete answer than that, but just that privacy definitely matters and even more so uh, in, in, in these cases. Mm-hmm. So just hold your ground mm-hmm. and educate yourself, right, mm-hmm. about what, what it is that the dangers are uh, and then yeah. speak up, speak up and tell uh, the, the powerful platforms uh, and the decision makers, tell them what the risks are from your point of view. Mm-hmm. Because it's very difficult for people and they, you know, very often people don't, don't go through that exercise uh, who are in a different position societally to even understand, to comprehend what the risks may be for the vulnerable populations. So, of course, they need to ask, but you also need to speak up. Speak up. Mm, all right. Yeah. Tell that, listeners, you should speak up about how the data is being used and managed. Thank you so and much. And whether you're comfortable, with right, okay. with, the, with mm-hmm. that use and, or, and if you object, because we have, uh, collectively, we have a lot of power, mm, yeah. right? Uh, in, in this world in which, for example, we have platforms and we have uh, data subjects, people whose data mm, lives on those yeah. platforms, and then there are countries that are trying to regulate, arguably more power is with the people, with the data subjects, than with the regulatory authorities. Yeah. Um, because these are international platforms, mm-hmm. right? Uh, there is no single global worldwide regulatory authority. But I think that people can unite and people can speak up. All right. Thank you so much for, for that. Now we are still on the telling the story of the AI and data science potential in Africa. Now, what promise do you see in Africa as regards building responsible AI and data science systems when it comes to the old general field of responsible data science? Yeah, so I think that there's actually a tremendous opportunity for mm-hmm. topics like responsible data science, like responsible AI, to engage people who have not been uh, typically and historically yes. engaged in these technical topics. Um, and I see this also in my classes. Uh, I see a lot of engagement from uh, populations that in the US are historically mm-hmm. underrepresented in the field of technology. And this is because the kinds of problems that we talk about, that we think about, yeah. are not abstract. Uh, they are problems that people care about. Uh, 
And so I think that the greatest potential here is really, you know, if you're engaged uh, in the work, if it really touches your, not just your mind, but also your soul, yeah. your heart and your soul, then you're much more likely to be successful. So uh, again, I, I see this as an advantage uh, in, uh, in places like Africa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because uh, folks in, in communities that, that have not been privileged historically uh, really feel that these are important subjects. And as soon as you put a lot of energy and a lot of kind of an emotional backing mm-hmm. into yeah. a problem, you're very likely to succeed. So please stick with it. Please look for examples. Please look for problems in the responsible AI and data science realm. Uh, I think that you working on these problems can really impact your communities and it will be fun for you. I mean, I know for myself, uh, it was a phase transition for me when I became interested in responsible data science and AI uh, in terms of just how interested I was and so therefore how productive. Thank you so much for that, Professor Julia. Um, Professor Julia, what are the applications of AI that you think we should pay attention to the most when thinking about building AI projects responsibly? Because I, I know for sure that you know, some applications are more high stakes than others. You know, what are those specific applications you think we should pay attention to the most? Right, so, so this, this again is a great example. Um, there are some applications uh, where I don't think we should be using data science and AI. Uh, okay. And there are some applications where we should be very, very careful about using these techniques. Okay. And this links back to my answer uh, to the question about what members of the public should be thinking about uh, in the context of AI and data science. So um, we, when we take on projects, we should be very clear that there's actually uh, a potential to succeed. Mm, okay. Meaning that using AI in that particular context is not snake oil, essentially, right? That there's some way for us to verify that the solution that we produce works. Like there's some way for us to say it works or it doesn't work if I observe the following happening, right? And I said already earlier, I realized that I'm contradicting myself here a little bit, that we cannot uh, kind of in the general case see what the long-term effects are. Um, As we are deploying these systems, we kind of have to wait and let them play out. And so there's this responsibility that we take by kind of going out on a limb and saying, I'm going to implement this particular way to distribute resources to schools, for example. I can only implement this one way, and I'm hoping that that's going to be productive. But in some particular cases, very often, there are ways for us to check. And kind of even stepping back before that, we need to be convinced, we need to have reason to believe that the data that we're taking, in fact, gives us productive signal Mm -hmm. to be able to make the prediction that we're uh, trying to make. So I'll give you an example of uh, the use of uh, tools, uh, and some of these are AI tools, Mm -hmm. in the criminal justice system in the US, Mm -hmm. where the premise is that by looking at a person's past behavior, you can actually predict whether or not they will commit a crime in the future. And I think that this is ethically just a flawed question to be posing. Mm because you are essentially denying to an individual free will and agency, right? Mm -hmm. You're saying that their past predetermines their future actions. And while it may be warranted to try and make these types of predictions, or generally types of predictions that you are predicting behavior of groups of individuals, so as to say distribute resources in some way, I don't think it's ethically defensible to be making these decisions on an individual level Mm -hmm with the consequence being that you then punish the people preemptively. 
Uh, so that's, that's one domain where I would not use AI because again, I don't have any reason to believe and I don't think it's ethically defensible to be kind of believing in AI to be this magic arbiter that can foresee the future. It cannot, right? Mm-hmm. All it can foresee is the past and it can reenact the past. Another example of, of these tools is in one of my favorite domains. Now it's employment. Mm-hmm. And so in the US, we use tools, uh, these, these uh, learning methods to screen applicants for jobs uh, and to then make predictions on this, based on these uh, results of these screens as to whether they will do well on the job. So for example, one set of tools, it analyzes videos of applicants, not even what they're saying in those interview videos, but how they move the, the way that they, uh, you know, the, the facial expressions, yeah. the way the body the movement, yeah. right, the body language. And then they're saying, we are going to use this as a signal to predict for us how well or how badly somebody will do on the job. Again, this is snake oil, I think, mm. by definition, because we have no reason to believe that there's any useful signal in a person's body language with respect to how well they will do as a programmer, let's say, right? Okay. And in fact, there is a tremendous potential for discrimination. This is something that we call race science, and it's something that's been debunked over uh, you know, decades and centuries, and yet it's once again showing its ugly head to us here in this AI environment. So when we choose projects on which to work, we have to be sure that we believe in the premise, that whatever we're trying to predict, to guess, is actually something that is predictable and that is ethically and morally uh, defensible to be trying to predict. So I guess this is my question as to what projects to choose is more about what projects not to choose and just being very careful about the consequences of the work that you are doing whether you're okay with your project succeeding, right? Okay. And what does it actually mean for it to, to succeed? Um, so you should be able to, to really, in your mind, to verify uh, that the work that you are doing actually is working, right? The result is, is correct, that it's working and that it's impacting the world in a way that makes it a better place or at least uh, makes it stay neutral, <laughs> but not kind of allow it to step back into things like race science and snake oil. All right. Thank you so much, Professor Julia, for, for that. Now, with a focus still thoroughly on Africa, you know, what are the types of AI and data science biases that you think we should, uh, we should be aware of in this growing African AI ecosystem? Because we look at Africa and it's becoming an emerging technology ecosystem, not just for AI and data science, but for entire software industry. And of course, looking at the AI ecosystem becoming stronger, there are lots of things we could talk about when it comes to responsible data science in Africa, which you also, of course, told us about. You know, what are those types of AI and data science biases that we should be aware of in Africa? Go on. So I, I unfortunately don't have a lot of experience uh, specifically in the African context. So it's very yeah. difficult for me to comment on this uh, in, in kind of in any way other than to reiterate that uh, yes, it is a bunch of developing economies, okay. but don't take shortcuts in terms of data protection. Other than that, it's really hard for me oh, to okay. to comment specifically. Mm. Mm. All right. So but back to back to the old research space. You know, what do you think a lot of people often get wrong about responsible AI and data science? Well, it depends on whom you ask, right? Okay. I mean, there are, there are many people there. Uh, so some people think that it's uh, it's a kind of a soft set of questions and a soft set of methods, meaning that it's very preachy, like you're going to be telling people, oh, don't be evil, but I'm actually not 
going to tell you how to not be evil or how to check, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. uh, there's a lot of work, uh, and that it's very important work that goes on in uh, kind of a social studies of how technology impacts society, where uh, there's a lot of critique uh, mm-hmm. of things going wrong, and yes, indeed, things do go wrong. Uh, but then it kind of stops at that critique, right? So what responsible data science is not is critique for critique's sake. Uh, the goal of responsible data science, as I see it, is to then help engineer solutions, right? So we don't stop with just observing that something is going wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have an opportunity to intervene. And these interven- interventions are not always technological interventions Mm -hmm. uh, and they're never purely technological because we cannot pretend like uh, that we take a data set and we debias it in some way and i'm putting air quotes around Mm -hmm. debias and that that will fix the world's problems with uh, inequities with gender bias with racism it won't right because all you're doing is you're touching up this reflection of the world that is data but you have to work extra hard to make it so that uh, whatever issues you observe with the world through data, that you're able to actually help correct it back in the world itself. Mm, Uh, And that will require a lot more, again, than playing with data and playing with algorithms. Uh, We also need to very often understand that, yes, we observe these problems, they exhibit themselves in the data, but the way to mitigate them is to go back, Mm, right? And maybe provide more educational opportunities for people or... Uh, work more carefully on the way in which we collect this data or incentivize people by giving them appropriate privacy uh, and data protection mechanisms to actually truthfully and kind of with trust give their data into these systems so that we can then make decisions that benefit them uh, rather than only benefiting a very small select subpopulation. All right. Because the reason I ask this question is uh, uh, sometime after your presentation, uh, Professor Julia, that was with us sometime about a few weeks ago, I had a conversation with um, somebody on Twitter where, where I retweeted with a post and um, he was like, we shouldn't kind of de-bias, we shouldn't try to take steps to de-bias, we shouldn't, uh, the, the, the responsible AI concept is kind of a hoax because AI systems, are, of course, according to him, are neutral and that we should just let them see the world this way and try to make decisions. And I had to kind of bring back this concept of the fact that if you leave AI to train on data this way and you leave it to go to the world, deploy to deploy these systems into practical use, there are lots of people that are going to be affected, you know, underrepresented people, like you said. I, I asked the questions to really make sure that people understand that there are lots of things that are right about, you know, responsible AI based on our conversation before this question. And there's actually some few things that are wrong about the way they think about um, responsible AI. Yeah. Yeah. So I think maybe the misconception here is that when we say, and it's, it's part of it is, is the term mm-hmm. itself, yeah. right? When we say responsible AI, whose responsibility mm-hmm. is it actually? And in my use of this term, the responsibility is not of an AI. It's not of a data set. Responsibility always rests with a human. Mm-hmm. Uh, because an, an integral part of responsibility is accountability. And yeah. only a person, somebody who can exercise agency, right, yeah. and who can take actions, is uh, accountable and therefore responsible. Yeah. So responsible AI, to me, is not uh, letting algorithms or letting data sets fix autonomously the problems that the world has created. Mm, And part of it, because of the technical bias discussion that we had earlier, Mm. is that 
many of these problems themselves are due to technology, right? So we cannot have technology fix the problems mm -hmm. that it itself created. Mm -hmm. But responsibility is with the human. And when we build these responsible AI systems, our job as, as builders is to make it so that we can expose these responsibility knobs for people to turn. Mm -hmm. And these people could be individuals, developers, who need to then understand that they're making a deliberate choice when they're encoding one particular data imputation method versus another, let's say. We also need to expose these knobs to population groups and to society at large so that we can debate jointly about how to turn them, right? Where do we find this trade-off mm -hmm. between, say, efficiency and being non-discriminatory, just kind of very uh, broadly speaking. Um, but yes, responsibility is with a human, and absolutely there is a role to that technological solutions should and can play in exposing the kinds of uh, inequities that are in our data mm -hmm. and in helping us instrument our systems so that we are more deliberately making these choices about the trade-offs. So this, this point of view that responsible AI is harmful is a very kind of a uh, extreme technocritical mm -hmm. view. We don't have that luxury to throw out technology, right? Technology is out there. We have to engage with it. It's like a similar argument is governments are corrupt, right? So what do we do about it? Do we disengage from government? No, we have to engage so as to make it less corrupt. It's, it's a similar argument here. Mm. The genie is out of the bottle, right? Technology is used. It will continue to be used. We have to engage with it and we have to find a productive way to engage. Mm. Well, thank you so much, uh, Professor Julia, for for such clarification, in fact. Now, looking at um, our listeners, of course, most of them are researchers, practitioners, engineers, and developers. Now, what qualities do you think one needs to become a world-class researcher in machine learning and AI generally? I think that you need to care about the kinds of uh, questions that you're asking. The most important thing is really just having this enthusiasm mm, okay. uh, and, and the kind of the desire to, to make a difference. And of course, you also have to believe in yourself. And this is much easier said than done. Mm. Uh, right, and then I know because, uh, of course, I'm a woman in technology, mm -hmm. and I'm not a a member of a broadly represented group in technology, and so we all experience this insecurity, this imposter complex, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That uh, who am I to to be giving advi advice? Who am I to be here? But it's very easy to hide behind that. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. I feel like it's our responsibility to overcome it, so that uh, a diversity of voices is being heard in this domain. Um, so just believe in yourself and, and find yourself a problem that you care about solving. Mm -hmm. And the rest is, uh, is hard work. And we all know that we can put in hard work, right? right? So um, yeah, just don't, don't. And, and another thing is if you fail, you know, get up, everybody fails. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and the more you fail, the, the stronger you, you become mm -hmm. at the kind of at the end. And this is why those of us who come from uh, perhaps less standard or disadvantaged backgrounds who have failed a lot are ultimately more successful in the long run because we're we're more resilient. Mm. So just see that as an advantage to yourself. Excellent. All right, thank you so much um, for for the advice as well, Professor um, Julia. Now, of course, um, we can we can predict so much of what's going to happen in the future in the future of technology in general. But, you know, just looking at the next three years, what do you think is changing in the AI and machine learning landscape that people should know about? Uh, I think that people are becoming more and more aware of these uh, issues with uh, 
just technology not being, you know, objectively correct, mm -hmm. but rather making judgments. And so we need to think about these aspects of responsibility, mm -hmm. fairness and transparency and explainability. So I think that there's going to be a lot more work uh, in this realm. I cannot, of course, predict uh, what is going to, to be happening in terms mm -hmm. of new yeah. kind of algorithmic mm -hmm. advances yeah. here. I think that we will continue to be more uh, more accurate, more robust uh, in the models themselves mm -hmm. that we that we build. Mm -hmm. But I also think that there is because there is now a very you know growing understanding of all of these societal and ethical issues that arise. Mm -hmm. I think that there is going to be also progress in technology policy, uh, where policymakers and this has to happen in every country, unfortunately, individually. Right? Of course, we have to learn from each other, mm -hmm. but. Ultimately, this is, uh, this is a more local phenomenon uh, where policymakers are going to start understanding more and more about what these issues are, and they will start questioning existing laws, existing policies, and augmenting them uh, with controls uh, for AI, for data science, for data collection. And this is where we as technologists also should play a role, I think. We should really step in and help inform policymakers about what AI can and cannot do for starters, right? Because that awareness is lacking. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the policy realm, just as much as among the general public, there's still this belief that AI is magic uh, and it really is not. That's a harmful belief to, to hold, right? Nothing can foresee the future. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> AI cannot either. Yeah. And when it makes mistakes, someone has to take responsibility mm -hmm. and yeah. it has to be a human because mm. a machine cannot take responsibility. Mm, all right. So for the, the awareness to these policymakers, I think it leads us to uh, our next question. Is this also what you're excited about in the future of machine learning and AI? Or is there a different phenomenon entirely that you're excited about? I'm very excited about the increasing uh, impacts that mm. we technologists have in society. Okay. I'm very excited about the opportunities for us to work together with people other than us, mm, right? Yeah. With actual people being affected, with policymakers. I'm very excited about opportunities to educate folks more broadly mm, okay. about data science and AI. And so this is another thing I want to make sure that I say is that we have a responsibility as technologists to teach our children, to teach our spouses, to teach our grandmothers mm, mm, uh, about, about these topics, right? Because they all are data subjects, mm, yeah. <laughs> either already or, or in the future. Uh, and so what we know, we need to tell people about, you know, and figure out how to tell them without intimidating them, but to really help them understand and form a more nuanced understanding of, of this, this very complex space. Mm, all right. Thank you so much. That nuanced understanding as well as informing people, informing children, informing men, from making sure that the knowledge is there. Now, uh, Professor Julia, do you have any advice for people starting to apply ML responsibly and, of course, to, to real-world problems through a company or community? Right. So uh, this, this, again, is, is going back to one of the oh, things that okay. we already covered, and that is, is responsible AI even helpful, right? So, or, or is it itself a kind of a band-aid, uh, a very shallow okay. fix on society's problems? Should we even be engaging in that? So, you know, just like AI is not magic, once again, technological solutions uh, to try and fix the problems of the world through AI and through data have their limits. So when you engage in these, say, bias mitigation methods, when you are looking for bias issues in your data, just again, stay humble, right? Make sure that you 
uh, are yeah. stating the assumptions that you're making about the types of bias that you see. And many mm. of these assumptions you cannot validate scientifically. They're not hypotheses. They're just, I'm going to assume that there's bias in the data, that there's underrepresentation of women, let's say, because yeah. women have not historically been hired for these types of positions at companies, right? So you have to state that precisely. You have to state your worldview. And then in a way that is consistent with your worldview, you can diagnose problems and you can then propose ways to mitigate these problems. And some of these mitigations will be technological, but many will not be. Uh, so here again, this humility about, you know, what is my scope of intervention is very important to have. Lots of people are also working on, in addition to fairness and bias, lots of people are starting to work on transparency and interpretability methods okay. um, to explain what's in a data yeah. set, to explain how an AI method works to explain what its outputs are. And there, there's also, uh, it, it's very, very important to state specifically yeah. who the people are, who these stakeholders are to whom you are explaining. There's just like there's no bias in absolute terms and there's no fairness mm -hmm. in absolute terms. It very much depends on kind of your lens. Uh, so also interpretability and transparency mm -hmm. really depends on who you're talking to. Right. So, so when you're saying that you, for example, are developing uh, interpretable AI methods, you have to say, is this for members of the public? Is this for a developer? Is this for an auditor? Yeah. Right. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to check whether, in fact, what you are saying is interpretable, is being understood by the consumer whom you're targeting. Right. So, so again, just okay. keeping this kind of... Uh, view of uh, technology cannot solve everything, but of course technology, technology can help, especially with technical bias uh, type things, and just being very cognizant of who you're speaking to at the other end. All right, thank you so much, Dr. Professor It's been an amazing session with you and an enjoyable conversation with you. Do you have any departing thoughts for our listeners? Uh, it's it's been a pleasure. Uh, it's really wonderful that uh, that you are engaged in this initiative. I'm thrilled to um, to help in any way that I can. So please stay in touch, and let's definitely yes. have some of these conversations over Twitter. I know that there's quite a bit of a debate mm -hmm. yes. about you know the usefulness of these interventions. And uh, again, my issue there is that nuance lacks. And so I think it's all of our jobs to not talk past each other, but to be listening to each other. So each let's other. let's work on that. Mm -hmm. And then I'm happy to continue engaging. Please let me know if there's anything else that uh, that I can help with. And congratulations on, on this effort. All right. Thank you so much once again, Professor Julia. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning into this episode of Professor Julia. Every link we mentioned will be in the show notes, so you can check that out right after the show. Thank you and bye-bye and stay safe. Thanks, Stephen. Bye.